Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Yeah, I was just curious. Adult, you know, believers' baptism among the uh, the English Baptists, whether they were, you know, pacifists or not. Because again, you've got the, the the whole, you know, England particularly. Think of the Puritans and the and the murdering and the slaughtering. And you know, the the story was the reason that Puritans came to America is they ran out of people to persecute. <laughs> so that's why. They, yeah. And that's what founded America. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Spanish hadn't killed off enough people, so the uh, Puritans came over to finish the job. Finish it off? Yeah, uh, sad. I've been watching uh, a documentary, Kill the Brutes. It is just painful to watch, and of course the history of this is certainly the Roman Catholics did their share of genocide. Some of them were very straightforward, saying, well, we just came to look for gold. Others were saying, yeah, we came to save souls. But then the uh, Calvinists, the Puritans, they were crusader-like in their genocide of the Native Americans. But I'm suspicious that, you know, if you just had to stack up bodies and the time that the uh, Calvinists were around, that they, they probably got in more than their fair share of killing just for pure evil. And he just says, yeah, if anything that happens, God, God caused it. And so literally in Calvinism, as I'm understanding reading Calvin, he's just saying, yeah, the devil is caused by God. That's, the, that's God's work. So literally you cannot distinguish between God and the devil. Mm-hmm. I think that's as perverse as the religion gets. It's steep competition for the perversity here. Even with groups that follow that idea of just war, like that, the tendencies to think that is the, their goal, but in reality, all they're doing is war. So I like the quote from Baden that said that just war is just war. <laughs> There's nothing. <laughs> nothing yeah. yeah, it's sort I, of I my feeling. Yeah. Thinking of, you know, the Anabaptists in this case, in our history here in Mexico, it's not that, you know, we didn't really have many groups like them coming in whenever, you know, we had the Spaniards coming in. It was pretty much Catholicism. It was just a crusade. <laughs> it was uh, some sort of inquisition here. And, you know, they always claimed that it was a just war because they actually stopped human sacrifices and all that stuff. We could probably say that something along those lines actually happened. But I would say that we just exchange who was doing the human sacrificing. <laughs> it was not in indigenous groups anymore. It was the Catholics, Spaniards. So, yeah, I mean, I wish we would have had more groups like the Anabaptists coming in. You know, even with that today, it's only a few groups that, you know, would fall into this kind of thing about peace. Uh, most people I know uh, that are Christians would always find excuses to do violence. That's unfortunate. After we go through the stuff tonight, I think what we're going to see is that groups that are not deeply rooted in the history and theology, which part of that, you know, part of that's that's the way they become peace churches. Well, that's the reason they're peace churches in the first place, because they're not deeply rooted. But the price of that seems to be, but then as soon as a war comes or something in the outside circumstance occurs, we see a gradual loss of 
what you're telling me, Tim, that's even true of the Mennonites up in Canada. So it seems to be nearly a universal thing. And I, I don't have an answer for it other than to say that, you know, it has to be a theological commitment and a community commitment. That is a church commitment. Unless you're in a position of power in your church, this is such an unsettling sort of position to hold to. One other thing I was thinking about during the week, though, as uh, we were looking at the different groups, is I wonder where the monastic groups and some of the more, like, you know, you've got the, the Fran- Franciscans and the, uh, I know the Jesuits were kind of created as an anti, you know, sort of a anti-Protestant group, but I would, Benedictine, I would think some of the monastic movements may have very much embraced oh, yeah. the peace tradition. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 they did. And that, I mean, that's the thing that we've passed through, is that Roman Catholicism or the Catholic Church, peace was normative. I think, isn't that Bainton's point, that just war is never officially accepted doctrine by the Catholic Church. And so, too, the priests, were, for the most part, never allowed to participate in war. They did at times. We have periods in history of certain groups. And, of course, the monks, that's the peaceableness of the monks and the monasteries. But then even in the secular world, the princes, that they still had to go do penance when they were involved in war. So what that says is peace was normative, and violence was always a sin. I mean, the shocking thing in this is that it's only with the Protestant Reformation that just war becomes a part of the creedal formulas in all of the major mainline churches. They hold officially to just war. Now, I suppose if I said this to Anglican priests, he would say, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Well, it does mean something because, of course, it is a state church. So I guess you could be an Anglican and be you know, believe in peace, but the norm, as stated in the Anglican, the Church of England, which is not official, it's not a creedal church, but nonetheless, it's an embrace of just war. In the Augsburg Confession, you know, by Melanchthon, he officially embraces it. I mean, that sounds like a minor thing, but you understand what that implies then. Violence is no longer sinful, among the Protestants. So I think it had remained, you know, that violence was always the exception. And it's only with the Protestants that you can serve God without sinning as a soldier, as a mercenary. You don't need to repent. You don't need to ask for forgiveness because you're doing your godly duty in whatever sphere that you may be serving God. To me, that's, a, that's a, a huge deal. Well, I don't consider myself Protestant. I'm not Roman Catholic. Certainly on this issue, I'm not Protestant. Part of the point of this class, peace has been the norm. And tonight we'll make the point, and well, Bainton has already made it, that even in the Protestant Reformation then, simultaneous to and even prior to the Protestant Reformation, you have peace churches who are setting out, they're breaking away, in some sense, from Roman Catholicism. And it's almost universal that when they break away, a key part of what they're rediscovering is nonviolence. I think that's significant. Now, the, the profundity of it may be lost, in the, and then they lose their nonviolence. At least they rediscover it momentarily. 
Is there a, maybe I've missed this, is there a universal agreement on what just war is, like amongst whether it's Christians or nations or whatever, like is there a, a universal agreement on that or is it just a phrase that gets thrown out there to, you know, make people feel better about going to war? You know, when you say universal, universally agreed upon, I think there were universal tenets that the just war, you know, first of all, there are certain things that you don't kill non-combatants. There were holy days for most of Roman Catholic period or the Catholic period. The war, it could not be an inferior declaring war on a superior. You know, they had to have equal power, nor vice versa. That is that a strong power and so if there were a possibility for a negotiated peace, that it has to be a limited war, that there has to be particular goals in the war, we can name all these. But then you say, is that universally agreed upon? And that's sort of Allen's point or Bainton's point. Yeah, but as soon as you get in a war, of course, both sides consider that they have been wrong and that God is on their side. You know, Bainton makes the case that because of just war, that there is the possibility of arbitrating. And I think that's occurred in certain periods in which there was a uniform cultural understanding. Everybody's Catholic. So I, I think the yes, is, I think there is a uni almost universal certain things that they're affirming in just war. Is there a just war document that everybody said, okay, we're going to sign this. There's nothing like that. Uh, until you come to the creeds in the Protestant church, and then they literally, they have to set out. And Luther should develop just war theory. Luther also saw that war should be the last resort, not an option. The reason for the war had to be defensive and not offensive. That is, you, you're not an aggressor. The war had to be something that was not called by a private citizen. That would have been emphasized by the Catholics, but it's emphasized by Luther. Luther did modify some of the just war theories. He saw no room for crusades. This leads to Luther seeing both church, state and church, as ordained by God. For Luther, the church focused on spiritual things, and the state dealt with physical things. And so there's the two-kingdom idea. He saw two codes of behavior. Bainton says you can overdo that, but nonetheless, there were two codes of behavior. And so the dualism sees the state using coercive measures to accomplish kingdom work, while the church simply focuses on spiritual matters like sin. Being a soldier becomes a legitimate calling of God, and he saw war as simply a kind of police function of the state. And then Calvin would agree that the state ought to punish good and bad, but also it now had a function to protect true religion. And so Calvin, with that, is going to become a kind of crusader. And so he's going to burn Michael Servetus at the stake. And about, I lose track, is it about 50 others, Tim, that he burns at the stake? I, I heard that, in, that actually in Lake Geneva, he drowned 2,500 Anabaptists. He said, if you want to be rebaptized, we'll rebaptize you. And they actually took them out and drowned them in the lake because we're they done. were, again, considered heretics. It is documented, but, you know, with the Calvinists being the ruling party in the world today. We don't find that information quite so clearly. So yeah, he was involved in a number of deaths, killing. Protestantism took things a step further because maybe of this idea that, you know, like with Calvin, that there was no consideration to be, you know, paid to humanity if God's honor was at stake. And that just creates even more violence in, in that aspect because uh, who's to say, you know, what 
offense is going to put God's honor at stake. In this case, you know, Calvin. And so, of course, he's, he, he agrees with the death of, of many people because I just consider them heretics because of his theological stance, not because it was a universal agreement that, oh, yeah, these guys are heretics. It's just him saying it. So if he says so, then, you know, go ahead, kill them. It's that yes, he thing. almost became a crusader again. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the answer is yes. Sure. <laughs> okay. Just curious. Okay. Let me make a statement, and I'm, I'm referring to Yoder here. Pacifism arises where people are trying to be Christian without too much rootage in history. And so the picture that Yoder is going to do, he's going to really just kind of go through all of the groups that arise in the United States, nearly all of them, including the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, his point is with all of them, he even makes the case that Mormonism has begins as a kind of pacifist movement. But the point is they all begin as pacifists. And so they're on the frontier. They've extracted themselves from the old world. There is a kind of, I, I don't want to use the word naivete. I, I think we can be, and of course I'm reflecting back on the, move, the movement of which we're a part. I think I can sometimes be a little heavy-handed in the criticism, partly because of the philosophical fallacy, you know, John Locke and the idea that reason, but through reason we can approach Scripture. But I would say, yeah, but even given all of that, okay, I understand they were operating with a kind of false understanding. And actually, Yoder makes this point. Nonetheless, I still think you have to agree with the idea that we have to process this. We have to think about it. We have to reason about it. Perhaps not putting the emphasis to the degree that they did on our capacity for reason. Uh, we need help. You know, we need to look at the quadrilateral. That's healthy. But as I was saying last week, nonetheless, even if God whispers in your ear, you still got to think about it. You still got to be critical of it to understand it. And so the idea is not that, oh, we have these four authorities, and so we just uh, don't think about it. I think there is a kind of ground clearing with all the peace churches. And I don't think it's simply naive to say that, that then they go back and read the Scripture with fresh eyes. I think that's obviously what's happening. And this is Yoder's point. He says, wherever there is room for new vitality going back to Scripture— or encountering in new ways the challenges of the wider world, pacifism pops up. And it's not because of some mechanism. It's just because they go back and they start reading the New Testament, maybe in a naive kind of way. And maybe we can use the word naive because, of course, part of the problem is they're going to rediscover this. But then they, too, are going to succumb to history. And so they don't have a strong sense of history. I don't, you know, in the Restoration Movement, you can tell the story, and maybe it's only a slight exaggeration. There's the Church of the New Testament, and then it goes to Alexander and Thomas Campbell and Barton W. Stone, and all that stuff in between doesn't matter. <laughs> That's the Restoration Movement, but you understand most of the churches starting in the United States are Restorationists. And there's this kind of shared understanding that, well, you know, the old world, 
they screwed everything up. Luckily, we're in the new world. We're not weighed down by that history. So there is that naivete, but you almost need it, you know, because it is true that when you're weighed down by that history, and of course here it's not true because you do have the groups that are breaking away in Europe and Germany, and, you know, they're all going to go through the same thing. But they're going to be grounded. They're going to be very much aware of this history, more so than the churches in the United States. And so there's this return, you know, with the Campbells and Stone slavery presented, uh, you know, a stark contrast. If you took a church history class, I, th- I just don't think this is what you're going to get in most. You go study church history, you're not going to be studying the history of peace churches or the history of peace. I've had several church history classes. And dare I say, I have been guilty of teaching this history and leaving out this key element. Well, I was going to say, one of the things you often find is the, the, the Anabaptists are pretty much connected to the Munsterites, you know, Thomas Munster, and they're just seen as a bunch of wild-eyed, crazy, apocalyptic, mental, you know, just mad people. And then the rest of the Peace Church is pretty much ignored as a, as a sect, actually. It's pretty much, the Anabaptists are really considered by many Protestants as a, as very sectarian, and then they'll take, because the Hutterites as well, they were also a pacifist movement, and they're off, you know, again, on that same trajectory. And in a sense, you could say that's true in the United States. Where's all, you know, the, uh, I don't know if you know, Tim, about the Cane Ridge Revival. It's down in Kentucky, right? They're barking like dogs. They're whipping back and forth with the gift of the Spirit. It's part of the revivalism, you know, the frontier revivalism, that really the restoration movement is going to arise out of that. They didn't repudiate this wild stuff. I don't know if they believed it, but you know, but it's kind of odd because actually both Campbell and Stone, it's not an anti-rationalism. These guys are they're grounded philosophically, and so it, it is a rationalism. And yet, yeah, it's kind of wild stuff. Same thing, you know, with the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostals. All the Pentecostal groups start out as pacifists. You know, something's good. Good's happening there. You get this idea of God speaking to me directly, and like Tolstoy, you know, like all these groups, they're going back to the words of Jesus. What Jesus says on the topic is not real complicated, and so you have this kind of simple understanding among, for example, the Pentecostals. Uh, well, we'll just do what Jesus says and leave it at that. He's our authority. You don't need to argue about it. Uh, I think the Restorationists or the pro- the Campbells, and they were coming out of the same thing, but uh, were were a bit more rational in their in their grounding. The thing that Yoder does, he goes through. He not only traces the peace churches, but there's actually peace societies. And so one of the things that happens is rather than restart the church, some of these societies just as you get with many of the denominations, you know, you not just peace societies. You get Sunday school societies. In other words, the idea of a kind of parachurch understanding, and that's part of this. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison, maybe we could put into that. He was mainly known as an abolitionist, but he was all he founded a peace society and an abolition society. He founded two different societies, and he published a separate journal for each. So everybody in the Restoration Movement you know, that was doing anything significant, they had their own theological journal. But that just seemed to be true of a lot of people, that publishing was the way you organize. Then there's also, you guys all read Walden and, you know, Henry David Thoreau and Emerson. 
they're pacifists, but they're not pacifists because of any theological. It's just kind of a, it's in the air, I think, in the 19th century. And they have a understanding that government is intrinsically violent. I think that's right. Or it's at least tending to violence. And therefore, it's morally suspect. And therefore, you have somebody like Henry David Thoreau as a conscience. You know, he, he goes to jail in civil protest. And so we can't accept the government all the time. And that's Henry David Thoreau's civil disobedience. You know, he says that it's a kind of a personal conviction. And the way Yoder describes this, he says, well, they were really just updated Puritans. You know, the transcendental, if I had to be a heretic, I think transcendentalism is very appealing. I, as, a, as a teenager, I read Henry David Thoreau, found his Walden just fascinating. It, it is a kind of personalism and individualism. And a communitarian <clears throat> idea of caring for the other and your neighbor. And right, right. They, and they yeah, kind of, is that what's missing? I think it, they kind of read it as just being their part of being an American. There was the idea that we're all Americans, we're all rational, and we all are Christians, really. And, you know, for Henry David Thoreau and Emerson, they're not really. But there, there's that sensibility that there's a shared moral insight. And they never really considered that, oh, well, like you're saying, oh, you need a separate group. Yoder, in his book, in his parallel lectures, just he just calls this restoration pacifism. I won't go through the, the restoration movement, but he's just calling all of these groups that began in the United States restoration. He starts with the Plymouth Brethren. It's a renewal of the state church out of the Anglican Church of Ireland and the Church of England, and they're radically congregationalist, which seems to be a theme. The, among the brethren, there's the idea the church fell and it hasn't been restored yet. We're still waiting for this thing to happen. That Jesus would have instituted peace, but the church kind of failed, and we're waiting that it would be restored in the new millennium. And so this set of beliefs does not lead to communities to a peace position necessarily, but it does lead many to be radically pacifist. It appears in Yoder's estimation because of the group's simple church-world dichotomy. That is, they saw the church as over and against the world. He says it's not really grounded in Jesus' teaching because they don't think that they, uh, Jesus' teaching applies to Christians. Now, that sounds harsh, but actually, for Trenton and Allen, does that sound familiar? Did anybody ever say that to you? That's sort of the thinking. Well, the church begins in Acts, and so Jesus was not a Christian. It was emphasized in that way. I don't know if it was blatantly said, you know, therefore it's not for Christians, but emphasize, emphasis put on the fact that this happened before the beginning of the church, which is where we are now. So <clears throat> we look to the epistles and things like that for our doctrinal answers and things. You don't look to the Gospels, and G you're not really using Jesus as an example, which, of course, that is part of the problem, I think, in our churches is that it's all a propositional kind of thing. It's not based on the person of Christ upon the example of Christ, which is a horrible theology. I hope everybody recognizes that, oh, Jesus wasn't a Christian, therefore we don't follow his example. I, know, nobody, I hope nobody would say it like that, but that's really what's being taught. Uh, the crucifixion, because that's usually where, where it starts. It's like, well... Everything that counts is after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
So yeah. everything before, you know, is just discarded as the old ways, the Old Testament. So yeah, like Trenton says, it's not blatantly said, but that's what they're saying. <laughs> like everything before Jesus' death and resurrection, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So that would include Jesus' teachings. And obviously in a book like John, but I think in all the Gospels, that's just absurd because, of course, what John is describing is the church, uh, that Jesus is building the church in the gospel. That's what it's about, that here is my Father's kingdom. Here is the dwelling, the abiding place of God. It not only gives us, you know, we always oh, start the church in Acts, but then you almost just lose the gospels. This may sound strange, and you may say, well, that's not true. We studied the gospels all the time. But you studied the Gospels to harmonize them and to figure out the timeline and to defeat the liberals in their notion that the Gospels are contradictory. Tell me that I'm wrong, because you got you guys actually went through this. Well, it just, I mean, it seems like, too, you have to really <clears throat> do some jumping through hoops because you get into, like, the letters that John wrote. I mean, First John's kind of a commentary, like you've stated, on the Gospel of John. And we would say that that letter was written after the beginning of the church. So you have to figure out what to do with that. Or the book of Hebrews, when it talks about Jesus's, you know, being the exact nature of, of, of God, his, he's representing the exact nature of God. Like, what does that then mean if you're talking to the church then? Like, all those things become um, things you have to either dis discard, which Luther tried to do and for different reasons maybe, but or just hoops you have to jump through to try to explain your way out of them. But yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. We fall into a silly conversation with that because it, it's as if Jews would try to say that Abraham was not their father because he wasn't a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> you, you guys probably know the history, Tim, but what this comes out of, it's actually the seminary that I attended. It was in Cincinnati, but it's now closed. And it became a key seminary, and out of that, the little Bible colleges that are here in Missouri, at least two of them were started by former students of Lewis and R.C. Foster. R.C. Foster went to Harvard University and never got his Ph.D., but basically spent his life engaged with higher critical studies and focused then on the Gospels and created a harmony and it went into great detail as to why the liberals had it wrong. Really, it's an early 20th century phenomena that is still being taught for the most part. I, I, at least when I was you know, in Bible college, we did that. We spent a great deal of our time. I went to Ozark and we spent a lot of time with life of Christ. But what we were doing with the life of Christ wasn't developing a theology or you look at, oh, he said some nice stuff here, but mainly it was this harmony. And we created our own harmony. You had to, we literally created our own harmony. of the gospel. It reminds me of something C.S. Lewis talked about. We're so busy arguing for God, we don't really give a damn about God. <clears throat> it's almost that apologetics approach, isn't it? You know what I mean? You're just so determined to prove this that you ignore what's actually going on in the pages crazy yeah. and that's the grand travesty uh and we just don't have to play that game but anyway the brethren are also guilty of this and so they say that politics is not part of god's concern and they stay out of politics they're mainly or many of them are conscientious objectors 
but actually you'll also find some that are not that are in the military uh even the methodists you know john wesley really stays in the anglican tradition but in the united states especially methodism is really formative in the united i mean formative for the character of the united states i used to do a thing with gunslingers you know, all the famous gunslingers were part of a denomination one of the meanest gunslingers was john wesley hardin john wesley hardin uh his father was a methodist minister he was a killer but the point being that john wesley hardin even while he was serving time in prison taught sunday school uh i don't know if that proves my point but my, the point being that methodism on the frontier in the frontier revivals is kind of key and they then are going to talk about a complete sanctification but the idea is that once you talk this way then you can also begin to talk about an experience and part of that experience of course is that a, a different kind of lifestyle there's a concern for abolition of slavery for women's rights temperance and they were pacifists or at least they tended to be pacifists and of course the women's rights thing you This is the odd thing, you know, you early on in the United States you'd find women preachers in these movements and then that kind of fades so that almost the 20th century became more oppressive for women. Even Dwight L. Moody was a pacifist. Did you know that? Dwight L. Moody was fostered by a guy named John Farwell. Farwell was an in, you know, he had a department store in in Chicago. He was a pacifist. He started the I I'm getting off the largest ranch what was the largest corporate ranch the xit ranch he ran the ranch as a pacifist you couldn't have a gun you couldn't curse i mean you're talking about this huge ranch all these cowboys and no alcohol <laughs> and he's the first to use to use bob wire real and he's the guy that met dwight l moody at the ymca and dwight you know is a shoe salesman Farwell is there and they uh they had a preacher coming from the local seminary to preach that morning and the preacher didn't show up and Farwell turns to the young shoe salesman Moody and says Dwight you get up and preach and that begins the career of Dwight L Moody Are you familiar with the Churches of God they're sort of between the Methodists and the Campbellites between the Methodists and us so Church of God would have very similar doctrine to the Christian churches. They have camps that they go to, but there's no denominational structure, no do- denominational headquarter. And they don't, you know, like us, they say they're non-denominational. And then there's Pentecostalism. So the Church of God is, was pacifist originally. I'm just going through all these churches were pacifists. If you go to the Church of God today, maybe, but probably not. Pentecostalism, you know, it really is coming out of the same thing as revivalism on the frontier but doesn't it really is a 20th century phenomena but yoder's point is yeah but it's really coming out of the 19th century still and it's mainly methodist and baptist you know methodists are continually trying to have an experience of complete purity or purification and so there's a lot of emphasis in american revivalism on experientialism any of you been part of a pentecostal group 
I, I was in high school. And I remember the preacher would get up at night and he said, now, I had a sermon that I prepared, but you know, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said this nearly every week. The Holy Spirit spoke to me, and tonight I'm just going to speak from the Spirit. And this is kind of the idea that you can just go to the Bible and the Holy Spirit, you just read it and you know what it says. It's very, very simple. And it's quite, quite exciting, you know, to, to hear him because he'd yell and jump up and down. And, and I, you know, I think it was quite clever and funny. And, but the Pentecostals really don't have a lot. They're committed pacifists for the most part in the beginning, just because they're taking the words of Jesus as at face value. I, again, that kind of proves my point that there, this naivete or this kind of what we want might ridicule, it's not a negative thing in a sense because there is a kind of ground clearing that allows people to go back and say, well, yeah, I know what Jesus is saying about violence. We don't do it. Pentecostalism is uh, especially today it's not. Today it's kind of become a middle class, you know. But in the beginning, it was kind of a lower class sort of thing. And so there wasn't a lot of sense of social responsibility. So they were committed pacifists, but it was a kind of committed spiritualism that, you know, that was my private spirituality. And so all of these are what Yoder calls super congregational church structures. They're not real concerned with creeds. They're unconcerned about history you know, the history that they know about, well, that's all wrong anyway. And they're all talking about restoring the New Testament church, that Christianity needs to be restored. And there's little historical consciousness as to other peace churches. I don't know that the Campbells, if you would look in that Campbells, if you could find any reference to previous peace churches, because they're Presbyterian. And so I don't know how much, you know, and Scotland, how much they would have been exposed themselves to peace churches. I, I love this statement from Yoder. People from the Churches of Christ say their group was formed in AD 33. Everything between then and now is unnecessary. <laughs> uh, yeah, that pretty well sums, sums it up. <laughs> What's wrong with that? That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, we got it right. Yeah, yeah, we got it restored now. And of course, what I would say is that with the Wesleyan quadrilateral, you're you are doing tradition, but it's not an uncritical. You're you're not just taking tradition as an authority. And I would say that I can, I think I would just extend that to all four authorities. There is no innate authority other than in God. Right? God is the authority. And these other things are mediating that authority. And so we can never take even the Bible. You can't read the Bible uncritically, even if you think it dropped from heaven, because it's Christ that you're encountering, and you're not encountering Christ apart from the transformation of your own mind. So this is Yoder's statement about Pentecostalism. It was not only pacifist, but also racially integrated. I think it was one of the most highly integrated groups that black, blacks and whites were very much mixed in. Now, unfortunately, what happened to Pentecostalism is the same thing that happened to nearly every evangelical group, and they're doing church growth. And you know where church growth came from? Don McGavin. McGavin. And he's out of the Restoration Movement. You can blame the whole thing on the Christian church. I don't know of any group other than the, I don't suppose the Anglicans and the Catholics and the Orthodox are doing it, 
but every evangelical group is caught up into McGavern's church growth movement. And that's true of Pentecostalism. And so the integrated kind of, you still may see that in some Pentecostal churches, but it's really kind of lost. And so the black Pentecostals break away from white Pentecostals. And that proves, in fact, you know, in McGavern's notion of church growth, that's part of the, the growth method. You appeal to a particular group, you know. You can't have black and white people. You appeal to the cowboys. Yoder's point here is that the Pentecostals were not deeply rooted in pacifism. They, they held to it. And I went and looked, actually, just before this class, to the Assemblies of God official statement. It's kind of interesting because they devote a large portion of their website or their statement to peace. But then down at the bottom of it, they say, yeah, and but we recognize the role of government and the role of the policing power. And so it's almost that in making an official statement, they almost lost their pacifism. As far as I'm aware, that there is not a strong pacifist element in the uh, Pentecostal or the Assemblies of God. I, th I think every church has been impacted by Pentecostalism, but the pacifism, as far as I know, is not usually part of that. I could, am I wrong in that? I was thinking, too, also of, another, of the Vineyard Movement, which kind of grew out of, very much grew out of the church growth movement. In fact, John Wimber was doing courses at uh, with McGavern, I think, and um, now they might have had a pacifist angle going there a little bit again these were all movements of just reshuffling the saints you know so you'd end up with a whole bunch of ex-baptists or uh anglicans or you know whatever actually plymouth brethren i think in canada large number of vineyard pastors were, were former plymouth brethren really so no. had that, yeah in their, their root but again heavily influenced by the whole mcgavern kool-aid yeah, McGavern mixed with the Vineyard, mixed, you know, the Pentecostalism. That kind of became the church of the 70s and 80s. I don't, I've, I've kind of lost track. Even when I was in Japan, we had a lady there. She was quite wealthy. She was a British woman. And she went to Toronto to the air, airport Vineyard. And she and her sister went, and she got the gift of laughter and her sister, unfortunately, got the gift of weeping. It's kind of a sad story. She was kind of attending our church. She kind of dropped out after that. But the point with the Pentecostals, they became aware of church growth theory, the, the kind of um, upward mobility. No, they're kind of wanting not to be disenfranchised. And the interesting thing, take note, they wanted to have chaplains in the wars. And so they wanted to have their own officially recognized chaplains. And so they created seminaries by World War II. And because of the military chaplaincy, which required a seminary degree, you, you, know, you had to go to a three-year seminary degree. And the odd thing is they didn't believe in any of that for the local church. But they did all this for training to send the boys overseas. In their upward mobility, they... they uh, by 1967, I didn't quite understand this. In 1967, they put out an official statement and uh, they changed their constitution. And Yoder's point is, until then, they had been pacifist because they just believed in the New Testament. And then the 1967 idea, they still consider themselves a peace church, 
but they also then give full doctrinal support to both people who are embrace the idea of being soldiers or going to war and pacifism. Now, this is Pentecostalism? Yeah, this is, this is the Assemblies of God, which is one of the denominations. And this survey, you know, Yoder takes it further. He goes on, talks about utopian communities. Uh, who is it? Robert Owen, who founded New Harmony, Oneida, the... Uh, and of course, these are all pacifist communities. They don't really don't last. Uh, Seventh Day Adventists are pacifists. Ellen G. White, you know, the Millerite movement. I had a friend here that was a Seventh Day Adventist preacher, and he said, "No, the peace thing has kind of dropped with the uh, Seventh Day Adventists too." Jehovah's Witnesses were non-resistant. They reject military service. We had a, a boy in Japan. He wouldn't even watch the kendo practice. They tried to do everything to get him to participate in PE, but he couldn't, you know, because he was a Jehovah's Witness, he couldn't even watch it. What about the Mormon Latter-day Saints? What, where do they stand? Well, this is, Yoder claimed that in the beginning they too were, but that can't have lasted very long because Joseph Smith shot in a, you know, a shootout with his brother. And then in uh, Utah, they formed their own militia. And one of the worst massacres occurs, you know, the Mormons dress up like Indians. And they, have you heard this? They go out and massacre this people that they, you know, didn't want encroaching on their territory and then uh, blamed it, you know, they tried to make it look like the Indians had done it. If they were pacifists, it didn't last long. But Yoder mentions them and says that there was that, a bit of that tendency. The way that Yoder ends his chapter is with Leo Tolstoy. Not that Tolstoy was a part of the American movement, but of course, Tolstoy is going to have a huge impact on pacifism the world over. Uh, he's in communication with Mahatma Gandhi. They are near contemporaries. He's very much against the Orthodox Church in Russia. Uh, he writes the life of Christ. He goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. He takes, you know, resist not the evil one as key in that. And William Jen Jennings Bryan who is a famous American pacifist, mainly known for the Scopes trial. But he is, he's corresponding with Tolstoy. And, you know, when you talk about Gandhi, that several people are going to be, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, is very much influenced by Gandhi. And so there's a sense that, and of course, King and the Civil Rights Movement, there's a sense that Tolstoy, even though he's way out in left field and he's a novelist, Nonetheless, he, he has a, a huge impact. Let me close by a statement. This is by Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's an address, 1838, his address on war, which kind of gives you the spirit of what the, the thought. He says, war is on its last legs. A universal peace is as sure as is the prevalence of civilization over barbarism, of liberal governments over feudal forms. The question for us is only how soon. Yoder's point is that Emerson's statement is Puritanism secularized. And of course, many people thought with the age of reason, you know, that we're, we're rational. Part of being rational, war is stupid and peace is rational and all civilized people are going to come to recognize this. This 1838, of course, Civil War, World War One, World War Two, all the wars that follow have yet to come. So, and I haven't finished, but I finished for this week, uh, the brief history of, of peace.
the thing that we've not done, I, you know, I have, I've not brought you up to speed up to the modern period, but of course, you know, the modern period, if you had to name the most famous theologian of the 20th century in the United States, the most significant theological thinker in the United States, who would it be? Howard Voss? Uh, well, Howard, <laughs> maybe some people. What would you say? Yes, Lewis, but I don't know where. Well, I said American. Uh, probably Reinhold Niebuhr. And actually, Harawas spends a great deal of time on Reinhold Niebuhr. And so Harawas is significant because he's gaining, engaging the same topic. Reinhold Niebuhr is going to develop a kind of realism. And he develops it precisely because of the issue of war and peace. Uh, he begins as a pacifist and ends as a realist. And he becomes the most influential theologian. Barack Obama, John F. Kennedy claimed Reinhold Niebuhr as their favorite theologian. So we'll look, next week I'll do a bit with that. Sounds good. You guys are easy tonight. I'm amazed. I always expect a lot of feedback and argument. You, you covered such a broad sweep there. Kind of like, whoa, we just, we just did 500 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Very good. Good. The history is interesting, but I think we need to say, okay, yeah, what happened? What happens to these peace groups? All the groups that I've main, named as pacifists are not now. It disappears. Well, that's, that's too harsh. Disappears is too strong. But for the most part, peace churches as organized churches disappear. We are the remnants. <laughs> We're the only one. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, guys. See you later. That was Thanks awesome. All right. Night. Thanks. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.